Maybe it's the script. I have to adopt your relationship to the script. I tried to be like you. I did a big action movie called The Incredible Hulk. You know what went wrong? I wanted a better script. <laughs> I thought maybe we should try to make one Marvel movie that was at least as good as the worst Chris Nolan movie, but what the hell was I thinking? Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a romantic comedy featuring a love triangle and then tell you why the point of the triangle, who has to make the choosing, made the wrong choice. I'm Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And today we are talking about the hit 2000 rom-com, Keeping the Faith, starring Ben Stiller, Edward Norton, and Jenna Elfman, directed by Edward Norton as well. Okay, so there's a lot happening in this movie. And I'm the one summarizing, of course. I'm very excited to do so. I had never seen this movie. Well, anyway, we'll get into it. I have a lot going on. I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> Breathe. So <laughs> We're gonna get there. <laughs> okay, so... The movie opens with sad, despondent father Brian Finn, played by Edward Norton, getting shit-faced in his dog collar, the priest collar, not like BDSM, <laughs> and telling this, this whole story, telling the story of the movie to a bartender, played by the wonderful Brian George. I love him in so many things. But anyway, so in the beginning, dot, 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 father Brian... And Rabbi Jake Schramm, played by Ben Stiller, are childhood best friends who grew up in the Big Apple. <laughs> They've known each other. Sorry, it makes it sound like they were like clergymen when they were kids. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> okay, let me rephrase. They haven't always been a priest and a rabbi. When they were children, they were just children. <laughs> <laughs> they met in like middle school when they were, you know, like eight, whatever. I don't know the age of middle schoolers. And they had a mutual best friend at the time named Anna Riley. And they both had big crushes on her. She was perfect. They were kind of like the three musketeers. She was big, larger, larger than life, etc, etc. But tragedy strikes when she has to move away in eighth grade to California. So she moves away and they lose touch with her. But they stay close and they just get closer and closer. Then 15 years later, they are now movers and shakers in their respective religions, Jake and Brian. Although Brian is about as bland as a communion cracker. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, anyway, we'll get into that blasphemy. later. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. <laughs> well, you like the flavor of communion crackers, Samantha? No, blasphemy to <laughs> Brian, who is very oh. flavorful in my opinion. <laughs> we'll get into it. I just had to throw that in there. Anyway, again, they're best friends. They're opening up a joint interfaith community center. They play basketball together on the weekends. It's all great. Until Anna suddenly reaches out to Brian and moves back to New York 1.5 decades after she left. And she is a dynamo. She's a whirlwind. She's a bisexual icon. You could just tell. <laughs> She's a high-powered marketing businesswoman connected to her phone. She's tough. She's spicy. She's great. I loved her. And so did Brian and Jake. They still love her, both of them. <laughs> but here's the situation for both men, right? So on the one hand, there's Brian. He's obviously not supposed to date or have sex, right? Because he's a Catholic priest. And he's fine with that because it's never bothered him before. 
And then on the other hand, Jake is trying to become appointed as, I believe, like the official rabbi of the synagogue. I was a little fuzzy on that, but that's difficult to do when you're unmarried. So he's been having eligible Jewish hotties thrown at him left and right. He doesn't really like that. He wants to fall in love naturally. And Anna is, if I haven't mentioned that already, she's not Jewish. Even so, their chemistry is palpable, Jake and Anna's, and they begin sleeping together. The first scene where they sleep together, it's hot, y'all. It's hot. I'm just going to say it. Anyway, <laughs> so they start they start a relationship pretty soon after she moves back to New York. And Brian is completely oblivious. So while Jake and Anna are vibing, having this romantic montage where they fall in love, wake up with each other on the weekends, etc., Brian is like, do I leave the church so Anna and I can finally be together because we're so obviously in love and the only thing keeping us apart is my job? Because Anna is a very friendly person and so she's just always been very like flirty is just part of her nature kind of thing and so Brian just kind of she kisses him on the mouth (laughs) (laughs) okay well I forgot to mention that on the same same night when Anna and Jake finally give in to their temptations for one another for the first time they go on a double date so it is Anna paired with Brian and then Jake paired with what is her name I suddenly can't remember but she's Holland Uh, Taylor's Rachel no wait is that the actress's name I know it's Rachel Rose is the actress I believe or no that's the character that's the character the actress is Raina Rachel. okay so he's on a date with Rachel who is the daughter of Holland Taylor in the movie and she is like a very eligible bachelorette she's a journalist she's in the synagogue and the congregation so she should be perfect for him but that that double date scene was just wild and weird because ben stiller only had eyes for anna like the entire time and there was also just a funny scene where anna does just randomly kiss brian i don't know (laughs) anyway 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 friends doing friend things Um, so while Brian is completely oblivious and he's having a little bit of a crisis because he thinks that him and Anna are fall are like in love or whatever, Anna and Jake are actually falling in love more and more each day. However, their relationship has stayed secret this whole time because he doesn't want to jeopardize his position in the synagogue or estrange his mother, Ruth, who had disowned his older brother from marrying outside the faith. So it's this really complicated situation for him. And this culminates in a disastrous night, but a wonderfully heart-wrenching scene where Anna says that she's turned down a great job opportunity in San Fran so she could stay with Jake in New York. And he suddenly kind of realizes how much she's giving up by being with him and how much he's not willing to give up. So they break up much to their mutual dismay. Then Anna calls Brian for comfort 
because she is distraught. Brian comes over late at night, completely misreads the situation and tries to put the moves on. He's like, oh, Anna, I completely agree. And then he tries to kiss her. And Anna, of course, is like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Jake and I have been secretly dating for like a year, my guy. I'm sorry. Cue the heartbroken depression spiral at the beginning of the movie. It all ties back in. It's all, it's all cyclical. So for the rest of the movie, Brian reconciles with his faith eventually, which is left a little open-ended as we don't 100% know if the priesthood is right for him. I don't know what we end up with doing with Brian. Jake reconciles with both his mother and his congregation. He gets appointed as a rabbi and realizes how much he actually does love Anna. Cue hilarious running to her office, big declaration of love. Then they all meet back up at the grand opening of the Interfaith Community Center. It's revealed that Anna has actually been taking classes to convert to Judaism and they all live happily ever after. Amen. Did I miss anything? I I think you got it all. The only error was slandering Father Brian Finn, who is the most oh, sensual character it. in this film. Sensual? <laughs> yes. Sensual. Oh, I thought you said central. You said sensual. Oh, okay. Let's sensual. Have it, Samantha. He should have been more central. We should have had approximately <laughs> 20 minutes more screen time with Father Brian Finn than so, we had with Rabbi Jake. Let's get into the obsession with wanting to fuck priests. Are we? Can we get into that like 10 minutes into the podcast? <laughs> Just cutting straight to the chase. Not even general reactions, which I'm sure we'll get to. But yeah, I guess that's this and Fleabag are both in the in the same ballpark of eroticizing uh, men of the cloth. Yeah. Well, let's see. I wasn't a huge fan of, of Brian, Edward Norton's character, But there is just something about, as you said, a man in the cloth, like, you know, a dog collar. There's something about it. There's something forbidden, you know? (laughs) I I had no idea about the psychology of you. One of you said in our Instagram group chat, like the idea of someone picking you over God, that blew my mind that that was like part of part of this like attraction fascination thing. Right? Because that was definitely what I felt about the flea bag priest. Yeah, because it's like it's like can, just to be frank, if you fuck a priest, then you've beaten God. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it comes down to. <laughs> I feel like it's a winning the battle but not the war kind of situation <laughs> where I think it's easy to maybe beat God in a moment, but. Uh, <laughs> God, we've declared war on on God within 11 minutes. We're coming out fiery this week. Okay, so let's just talk general reactions. Let's go back. I watched this movie in 2000, and I have forgotten that it existed for 20 years. I think I was, I watched it when I was little in part because it was like, I grew up in a religious family and it was like a religious rom-com and it was very PG-13 and there was some sex, but it wasn't like super sexy. And so it was a safe little family faith promoting rom-com of the 
2000s. And that's the context in which I first experienced it. But I like Edward Norton. And I, I generally enjoyed the movie. Jen? Well, this was my first time seeing Keeping the Faith, uh, along with you, Sadie. And I would say, okay, first of all, uh, I mean, color me ignorant, but it was news to me that rabbis can fuck. Like, (laughs) did you not know that? (laughs) No. I mean, I knew that, like, rabbis can get married. I knew that they didn't have to be, like, celibate, like Catholic priests. Oh. I thought that it was supposed to be more like a, like, how Having grown up in like a a Southern Protestant household and, you know, church, that it was supposed to be more like, uh, you know, ministers of that faith where they can date, but they're not supposed to do like premarital sex. And, you know, especially not unless it's really serious and like you're intending to marry that person. Like I did not realize that like Ben Stiller could be like getting it all around town. So uh, my my mind is a little blown by that. Well, he's a cool rabbi. He's a leather (laughs) jacket wearing Santana listening (laughs) rabbi. Oh my God. That was one of my favorite parts when Smooth started playing. But okay. So that was my first point, I guess. Also, news to me that Edward Norton directed this movie. That what did this yes. come out like the year after Fight Club? And, and it's dedicated to his mother. Was she alive when this happened? Why did he cast himself in the kind of sad sack role that didn't get to fuck? I don't I know. Th- I think his mother had passed away recently, and that's why the film was dedicated why to the her. Dedication. Yeah. Yeah. But his poor little character. Oh my God. So that's the difference with uh, okay because Fleabag Priest like the eroticism is so there because he is the only other character who really sees Fleabag you know and whereas as Brian Finn here bless his little innocent priestly heart keeps I I, I don't I'm with Samantha that I think friendly is a little bit of a mild descriptor for the way that Anna behaves in this movie but at the same time she's also like shooting winks at Ben Stiller and Ed Norton is like oh who me all that he's like permanently like in this film in the position of like when you think somebody's waving at you, but they're actually waving to the person behind you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was his whole role here. And then he questions his like entire life calling and vocation and spiritual commitment because of that, which kind of makes me feel that maybe he was just in a position to question all of those things anyway. And this was sort of the catalyst that set it off. Okay, but then again, we come to Anna, which, okay, like Sadie said, this lady has everything going for her. She looks, she's so like perfectly conventionally like made in a lab beautiful uh, that it kind of like it's she's almost reads as a little uncanny to me anyway and especially that she has this super high power job and is being begged to take over companies of misogynistic finance guys even though she wears like super tight clothes and you can like see her bra through half of her shirts and like where is her family I get that they made a whole a big point about how she doesn't date you know until the the Ben Stiller Jake thing because she doesn't have time because of her job but she has no friends 
friends except these two little dudes that she knew in eighth grade and like they have no friends other than each other and even though Edward Dorton, the priest, insists that he had fucked before he became a priest, like, I doubt it. I mean, both of them immediately. He brings up the point to, to Ben Stiller and is like, okay, okay, like, who is the coolest woman we've ever met? And these guys who are, like, in their early 30s say, oh, that's easy. This, like, 12-year-old kid we knew in eighth grade. And, and that is like, uh, I'm just still processing. I think we're supposed to believe that, like, they have all essentially sunk themselves into their individual endeavors. And so all of mm-hmm. them in ways have been starved of interaction with other humans since they were all best friends, which might explain why they're all so fascinated with each other, because they've not interacted with anyone outside of their trio in a decade and a half. I think it could also be, it's fair to say that she did just recently move like back across the country. So theoretically, those could be like, some of the only people that she does know in New York since she spent most of her life in like California. But I'm with Jen. I get uncanny engineered in a lab vibes from Anna. It's it's sort of like a kind of person that doesn't really exist. She's like high powered and ultra feminine and yet like doesn't appear to have hit any sort of glass ceiling at her workplace and is instead being asked to like take over entire offices and I don't know, and yet has no friends. But anyway, we can get into that later. I want to hear Sadie's general reactions because you really liked it. I did really like it. And one of the things that I liked about it is one of the things that you guys said that it, it didn't ha- it wasn't true is that I I thought that she was a really interesting character. Like I liked that she wasn't like very bland, attractive. She was very, very, very hot, but like she had that kind of deep kind of Gina Davis-esque voice. <laughs> she Not deep, I'm but like- I'm so sorry, Sadie, but I'm thinking she, about that, that recent lady scammer, like Elizabeth Holmes or whatever her name was. Like I was getting more of that vibe. Who? Was that her name? Oh, uh, no. Theranos. Yeah. Sadie, have you heard of Theranos? It was a company that claimed to be able to do single finger prick blood work and their claims fell mm-hmm. apart under scrutiny and the company collapsed. Oh my God. And the leader of it was a woman named Elizabeth Holmes who exclusively wore black turtlenecks and talked in a low voice, seemingly intentionally as some sort of like tactic to cultivate a weird cult of personality with her and her investors. Anyway, there's a whole documentary about it. Because they gave her millions of dollars and she kind of looks like a much jankier haired version of the character in this movie. Well, I don't know about all of that, (laughs) but... This this movie is a prequel to the Theranos scandal. But no, but no, I do like Sadie. I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm like leaping in here and like throwing all your blocks on the floor. Like, it's true, I'm, you are. Yes, <laughs> but I, I'm kidding. But no, I I and like there are a lot of things that I liked about this movie too. So I'm still trying to like sort this out in my head. But I so I definitely thought at that part where she first gets installed in her New York office and there's this running gag about how she can see this guy in an office across the street like constantly fucking women in his office. And 
she was like watching him through these little binoculars. And <laughs> uh, I was so confused at that point. I thought that the plot was about to take a completely different turn. I thought that because she had sort of like her job was very like generic, super high powered business person. But we as viewers didn't really get a very specific, even though we saw her at work a lot and it became clear that this was her legitimate job. I definitely thought at that point that she was going to be some kind of like private detective or assassin or something like it. Uh, I'm sorry. Carry on. Sorry. <laughs> uh, assassin. I'm screaming. Um, so, well, one of the things that I really liked about the movie was, her like she was very captivating when she was on the screen I I really loved the way that she talked I thought that it was very unique and I just found myself really liking her when she was speaking and I really liked the chemistry between her and Jake Ben Stiller's character I thought that they had really great chemistry I think that Ben Stiller can really look at people and that's like, like I think that he has really great like just I don't know when he looks at the character at like his love interests in in movies like in reality bites as well he's just really good at it and i loved the montage between them while brian is completely oblivious <laughs> and one of my like benchmarks for a good romance rom-com whatever is one if you can imagine them in a grocery store together two if you can imagine them on the couch together and three, if you can imagine them 10 years post movie. And for me, it checked all of those. Like they have great banter in the movie. And I really liked their discussion when they were breaking up. It was kind of an intense scene, but I thought that it was really well written. And finally, as someone who did not grow up in any kind of a religious household, to me, it even though it didn't paint religion in a like it wasn't propaganda, in my opinion, it just felt kind of like part of life. And like, I, I didn't understand Brian's motivations as much, which is maybe why I didn't like him as much. Because joining the priesthood just seems like such a big it, it just seems like too much but I don't know it just seemed really good and I really liked Jake's speech at the end where he was talking to his congregation on Yom Kippur it just felt very honest and I liked it I really liked the romance between them and that's all I have to say this podcast has been a long con <laughs> to get you to sexualize Ben Stiller it's I, all I, been a pretense for that. Long and successful. <laughs> he's hot. In this movie, he's fucking hot, you guys. Sadie, <laughs> I actually you will get on board with you with that. I personally was not super attracted to Ben Stiller's look in this. I mean, his like the way he was outfitted and styled and whatnot yeah. in this movie. But like you said, he really has like a palpable gaze. And he and, and uh -huh. our girl, like they really did have great chemistry together. And I think that that's one of the, like, I'm sort of 
bouncing back and forth between trying to like make sense of the different vibes that were crammed into this movie because I felt like it could have been a simpler and more effective movie that was just about Ben Stiller and Jenna Elfman's characters and that they reconnected and one is a rabbi and I one agree. is a businesswoman because that was those were the scenes that really read the truest to me I guess like you would have this much more realism between the parts where they they had the conflict about the relationship and were trying to you know she wanted him to choose her but then she was withholding information about that she was taking the the Judaism classes and and I always find that frustrating even though it's a thing that I do in real life sometimes you know to be like oh it's fine it's fine you know and just back off of like saying what I was gonna say but like dude like if she would have just told him some stuff earlier on like it seems like it all could have been a lot easier so I sort of just don't know why the priest was there except that Edward Norton wanted to be him in this movie but I mean he could have had his own other separate movie I don't and then like something just wacky and it would be like oh let's make a couple cheesy religious jokes and move on the moment so I don't just the tone was kind of like up and down and all around for me that's very fair I I now that you say that that makes a lot of sense because it feels like he's he's not it's either don't be in it at all or be in it more because the weird in between it didn't feel like he was fully fleshed out as a character and so like when you go into the movie the whole tagline is like there's a priest and a rabbi and she like has to choose between them but that's never the thing like she never wants to be with brian the whole thing is that she wants to be with Jake and then Brian is just there and he has a completely different view of what's happening. <laughs> I think I would have had more fun if the love triangle were a little more explicit and I realized that would make it kind of like tropey and trite and cliche but like I wanted to see the priest and the rabbi generally like genuinely compete for her yeah. affection Instead of her just like wanting Jake the whole time and that never changes and Brian just kind of falsely believes <laughs> that she was into him for two hours. It kind of made poor Brian come off a little pathetic that way because yeah. I, even if, you know, they had the conversation early on, she asks him as the priest about his sex life and if he was a virgin when he went into the priesthood and whatever. And, and like, and I can see them not making that, that obviously if a priest decides that he's going to fuck, that's like going to be a big moment, not just a casual thing that happens, like how the relationship with Anna and, and Jake started off. But uh, like, I guess it would have made more sense to me if there would have been more independent scenes of, of Brian and Anna relying yeah. on each other for emotional support or you know yeah. like yeah because Brian like disappears for like a good like 20 minutes of the yeah. movie and I didn't remember that of which uh, to be fair to myself the last time I saw it was 20 years ago which is wild that that's a thing I can say about my life Anyway, this has been your obligatory, <laughs> I feel old prematurely moment of the podcast. But like, I, I wanted more of him in there. And may I remind you both that the title of the podcast is You Should See the Other Guy <laughs> and not Let's Just Love on Ben Stiller's character, <laughs> no matter what movie he's in. Because well, they've got to let us see the other guy, though. And as you just said, he disappears for like half the movie and then turns well, up to throw a wild inebriated fit because well, he gets turned down. Uh, it was it was a little wild. Can I defend myself for a second sure. here? 
<laughs> I I was going into the movie fully convinced that Ben Stiller was going to be the other guy. So oh, interesting. For oh, so the about, movie other guide you itself. Yeah. Well, so for about half ish of the movie, I was gearing up to argue for Ben Stiller because I thought that it was going to end up with her being with Edward Norton's character, Brian. And so I just got really pumped for Ben Stiller's character and I was feeling very indignant because I was like, I can't believe that she's going to end up with Edward Norton's character because she has so much better chemistry with Ben Stiller because of this, this and this. And then when it actually ended with her being with Ben Stiller, I was like, well, damn, you know, (laughs) I guess I got my wish, but I did waste a lot of time just being angry for absolutely no reason. But then I, there was a really interesting conversation near the end of the movie between Brian and I guess his mentor, who was an older Catholic priest at his parish, who they talked about like falling in love and he was seeking guidance about whether or not he should leave the priesthood. And he he quotes the older priest back at him and he says, well, you know, when I was first joining, you said, if you have any doubts at all, if there's anything that you think you would rather be doing, then you should go ahead and do that. And then the older priest was like, I don't know about all of that. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> the <laughs> truth is that is that I fall in love every decade. Like I fall, I fell in love with a girl 30 years ago that I all that I still think about like all the time and et cetera, et cetera. And it just made me really mad because as you guys know, I don't support Catholicism. Wow. <laughs> I don't support Christianity in general, but I especially don't support Catholicism. And it just really made me angry in the same way that Fleabag made me angry. And I was just really upset on behalf of this old priest who, I, I don't know, As someone who is obsessed with love, I was just very indignant and I was like screaming at my TV. I was like, leave the fucking priesthood, Brian. Leave it and be happy. Please, God. Oh my God. Sadie declaring war on God within 10 minutes and then war on Catholicism, I guess, is a subset uh, within a half hour. (laughs) (laughs) This is a surefire way to get me really worked up is when you throw in a priest and you set up a romance between that priest because I just get really upset (laughs) if the priest sticks with the priesthood because your your valuing of love comes into conflict with the rules of Catholic clergy. It's like a situation perfectly designed to infuriate you. You're damn right. It was perfectly designed to infuriate me. If rabbis can do it, then why can't priests do it? It's because Catholic people just love to be oppressed. Wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they and they and they hate and they hate being happy. Well, to be clear and to spare myself at least the angry emails, I support any system of belief in which people find meaning and happiness in which they're willingly engaged and not exploited. Uh, anyway. That's I'll, that's I'll for put me. A, <laughs> I'll put a disclaimer um, on the tweet that announces this episode, and I'll say 
in advance. I apologize to my Catholic listeners and maybe don't listen to this episode. (laughs) I mean, like Catholic listeners, you choose your choices and that's fine. I do not judge you, but I do have a big old like the rock level raised eyebrow and some extreme side eye for your institution. I think uh, I think that's fair given recent reporting. Wow. Well, (laughs) this is going to be a hard swing back in the other direction. But uh, in defense of Father Brian Finn, you know what, not even in defense of Father Brian Finn. He needs no defending. He is the sexiest character in this movie. He is smart. He is bilingual. He, yes. uh, his sermons are actually interesting and not just gimmicky little things to try to make his religion seem young and hip. He's like, actually, I think hit a better 21st century sweet spot than Rabbi Jake and his preaching and his his liturgical work. Also, I think the hottest moment in this film where you can see the chemistry we were denied occurred in the dream sequence between yeah it was yeah it, it was yeah. father brian finn's dream and he's stretching anna out after a run around the central park reservoir or something like that and he's like pushing up her leg to like stretch out her hamstrings and she's like uh it's hurting and so she's moaning a little and then he says you're such a wimp and that moment was the best <laughs> moment in the movie and it didn't even take place yeah then she like deep throats one of his fingers and he like rips her shirt off and i was like damn father brian okay she really is leading both of these guys on but then no he wakes up it was all but a dream but like i think i think we saw in that moment what edward norton and jenna elfman you know could do together If they had had some scenes, if they had had more time together, that to me was hotter than anything that transpired between Ben Stiller and Jenna Elfman, I think. He should have been he should have been a little worse of a Catholic and a priest. If if we would have had a good old like flea bag like Neil confessional scene, yeah, I could be way more on on Father Brian's side. I just I guess I have always been like maybe unreasonably baffled at priesthood and the concept of becoming a priest unless you are like running away from something or I don't know because it's just this really all-consuming job that you you don't really see in in most other jobs because it's not just a job it's your entire life and so I just wanted more backstory for Brian and more of like, why did he decide to do this? Because it is a little bit different between a rabbi and a priest. And so I wanted, I wanted more, like, I just wanted more. I wanted to understand his backstory more and I wanted to know more about his character than I got. Don't they give him some childhood backstory about like he likes serving people, he likes doing nice things for people. But yeah, it's like, yeah and when he's like enough. eight, he's like, oh, I'm gonna be a priest. And then his mom was really excited. So he did it. Yeah. And it was like, okay, that's a real person with a real story there. Maybe a more like emotional connection. And I think like, what if he had 
had had like a dying family member who was like ministered to yeah. in a meaningful way or something like that. And I think that points to like attention within the film is like, I think it wants it kind of wants to like be emotionally deep and have some kind of like spiritual or personal resonance. But then it's also like trying to be like a priest and a rabbi compete for the same girl, waka waka, like rom-com. You know, I put this on Edward Norton because he is the one who wanted to begin the movie with a priest and a rabbi in a bar joke and he did that and then he brought it full circle so i will hand that to him but (laughs) this is like the movie adaptation of that joke like a hollywood screenwriter like bought the rights to a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar (laughs) and then some and then had to like I'd roll it out into two hours. <laughs> Flesh this out. Get us Jenna Elfman. Oh, I did notice too, because uh, Samantha asked in the group chat the other day, whatever became of Jenna Elfman? And I looked her up and I had completely forgotten that she is a Scientologist. And I guess that's why what? they threw in that little, yeah, where the bartender said, I'm reading Dianetics, Joe, like as a nod for her or something. I wondered, I wondered if she had any say over that joke or or if it was like at a time when maybe she didn't have the kind of influence to get a joke like that vetoed or something, because I don't know. But it, yeah, it was an interesting <laughs> moment for sure. Well, it was so like dare a you tell legitimizing me that. <laughs> it thing. <laughs> Sorry, Sadie. Also, maybe this colored my view too, going in. Oh, I, I was aware of the Scientology thing before I watched the movie, which might have contributed to my view of the strange kind of uncanny, you know, vibe I was getting from her. But yeah, no, it was when the bartender is like saying to the priest, he's kind of giving him this like religion is important, but all of our religions are important and like listing like seven religions that like his parents and grandparents and backstory that led him to where he is today and then ended it with like, and I'm reading Dianetics and and drunk Edward Norton is sort of like, oh, I see why you might. And I'm like, this is weird for a Catholic priest because I kind of thought that like conversion was their their jam, you know? Is Catholicism interested in converting people? I don't believe so. Because Judaism is not, right? But it's more like if you want to like marry into the faith, they want you to convert, but not if you're just a person. Reformed Judaism allows conversion, but both strike me as not faiths that are actively evangelizing but if you go knock on the door a bunch and say let me come to one of your cool sermons where the harlem gospel <laughs> choir you know sings they'll let oh, you God, come I do it about that part. i mean they do a lot of like missionary stuff do they not catholic yeah people? like you know helping the poor and stuff like that who can- <laughs> <laughs> worthless stuff that Sadie frowns upon. Sadie's ideal religion would serve the rich and the healthy. I mean, (laughs) they go into... You're baiting me to say more bad stuff about Catholic people and I will fall for it. So, (laughs) I mean, missionaries, they just go into poor communities and essentially hold them spiritually hostage. Don't like it. (laughs) They're like, we'll fix up your town, but you also have to listen to us talk about our religion for a long time. That's definitely, that's how like 
Southern American evangelicism works is more like volunteerism, you know, yeah, and like opportunities to go take pictures with, you know, like little, you know, brown kids who are playing in the dirt and then pictures of, you know, you holding your hands in the air and singing with your eyes closed and then talk about how God is so great. And now you realize how good you've got it when you get back home. But I don't really know how if that's how Catholic outreach works. (laughs) I'm only familiar with one flavor of it. But Mormons ride the little bicycles around, right, Samantha? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mormons have a strong belief in bicycles in eternal bicycle families. Uh, Yeah, as an ex-Mormon, maybe I'm just trying to be very diplomatic because there's a lot of weird, weird, bad blood between Mormons and Catholics, I think. Catholics don't like that Mormons have an extra book of scripture. Mormons are judgy about Catholics having like gaudy and ornate buildings that it's like a distraction from the simplicity (laughs) of the gospel or lots lots of pamphlets out there about, you know demonizing each other's religions and stuff. Yeah. So I'm 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 neutral to quote Kristen Stewart in Twilight. I'm Switzerland uh, <laughs> when it comes to faith discussions in this podcast, at least in this episode. <laughs> Do Catholics get to drink real wine in their communion services? I mean, I oh, know definitely. that, right? Okay, because they believe in transubstantiation, so it's supposed yeah. to be the blood of Christ, right? But yeah, I always thought that that was pretty spicy, that they get actual wine instead of like some gross, tepid grape juice, like what I was accustomed to. Wait, why does Southern Protestantism, do Southern Protestants not drink oh, mostly at all? they are big into not drinking. Yeah, okay. just culturally like occasionally they'll give a nod to like well it's okay to drink a little bit occasionally but like they inebriation is bad but like culturally I think that that's probably a lot of just like pressure to I don't know like to try to control alcoholic tendencies in various members by just making it a thing that is not done entirely and yet Tennessee is a state where you can have an open (laughs) container of alcohol in a car so long as you're not the driver Yes, (laughs) indeed. But oh, now we have we can get wine in grocery stores as of like 2018. Oh, we've been able to do that. If you go down to Alabama, like I'm pretty sure that they still can't have wine in grocery stores. I'm not certain what's going on there. But then you will have like the football dads will get tanked on beer every Sunday, like between the morning, like Sunday service and the evening Sunday service, because football is the real religion there. (laughs) I we should add another character into this movie. Just get all the religions in there. Just (laughs) Jenna Elfman with a rabbi, a priest a Mormon bishop, a evangelical youth pastor. Let's let's have a free-for-all, a battle royale of belief. It really was. Okay. It was interesting to me, though, Samantha, that you had watched this as a young person and that it was seen as a more family-friendly because of religion 
thing. But see, I feel like where I grew up, people would not have looked kindly on this, that many of them do not like seeing religion portrayed in pop culture at all, unless it's like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, weirdly. Mm. Cause, but because they think that it's like making fun of them somehow or cheapening it. And especially like at the beginning when it was, even though like it's about Catholicism and Judaism, like when Edward Norton is like messing up that little smoke thing that priests slang around and then like goes and like puts himself out in the holy water font or whatever. Like I could see that having people walking out of the theater at just the disrespect of the godliness of it all. So like lightheartedness is not very, I don't know. (laughs) These are also people though, who thought that Harry Potter was satanic. And of course, of course, Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, you know, so. (laughs) I, I sort of had a problem with the, like the cool pastor, like trope. It's similar to like the cool teacher trope or whatever, where, you know, the teacher get the person, the authority figure gets up to speak and is like, we could just, I could just tell you about George Washington or I could rap about George Washington or whatever. (laughs) And similar to, you know, Ben Stiller bringing in the gospel choir or whatever. It's like, you still have an hour to fill, bro. Like, you can't just get up every week and introduce some gimmick 30 seconds in. I guess in a movie you can because you can just jump time forward. But like, you're still filling an hour every week. You can't just like gimmick your way through that. You also have to be good at the boring parts of your job too to draw that kind of crowd in the year 2000 jesus pun intended oh my god (laughs) (sighs) oh yeah i think that edward Norton actually did say oh jesus when he set himself on fire and then went and dunked his butt in the holy water font and i was just like "Ooh, some of the people i knew like from church choir when i was a kid would not have been down with that at all but but yeah, Samantha, as to your point, like there is nothing worse than like an awkward hype man who's like pulling that, I can't hear you, you know, and like, come on, man, like just say your sermon and go. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah, the gimmicks only get you so far. Sadie, I need you to defend Father Brian Finn. I'm not letting you leave I'm- this podcast until you defend <laughs> Father Brian Finn. I'm so glad that you asked, Samantha, because I do have something to say positive about him, which is that overall, I think that he like, obviously, I understand that Ben Stiller's character was like, scared about all of the implications of, you know, having a long term serious relationship with Anna, like he was worried that he would get disowned by his mother. And he was worried about his you know, about being appointed and about lying to his congregation, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, Brian was ready to risk it all. Like he yeah. arguably, like you weren't, he didn't even, you know, Ben Stiller, Jake didn't even know if, if he would have any actual negative consequences to getting with her. You know, there, there was some turmoil, but for Brian, it's a 100% certainty that if he started dating Anna, that that he would have to give up his livelihood, that he would have to leave the priesthood, which means all of his schooling, everything that he's been working towards since he was like eight, question mark, would be just thrown out the window. (laughs) So I mean, just in terms of that, like Brian 
was very devoted from the beginning and he was willing to risk it all, which is part of the reason why I was a little sad that he didn't end up because I think that that's true that like, if you can see yourself doing anything else, then you should do that. Because being a priest is very hard, you know, and so I wish that there had been something of like him maybe wanting to leave the church. I don't know. But yeah, I really admired his dedication to Anna and his and his willingness to give give up everything to be with her. He saw what was special about her and he had to convince like Jake that she was like worth pursuing yeah, for the entire yeah. last 20 minutes of the film. Jake is like, oh, I don't know. I haven't really talked to her. And he's like, are you an idiot? Like go talk to her for like two weeks. He's telling his friend this and yeah, to me, like that is way more sexy than like, oh, I don't know if I could marry you. What would people think for like him to just show up there and be like, I am in love with God, but I would give it all up for you. Like, damn, like, even if I didn't even know him that well, like you go for that. (laughs) This is another reason why I want to know more about Brian. Like, so he says that he decided when he was eight that he was going to be a priest, right? But then he does say that he's had sex before. So, and she didn't know that he wanted to become a priest, question mark, which leads me to believe that he didn't really talk about it in middle school or anything. So I just need to know what his life was like. I need to know what was going through his mind. I need to know what his college life was like. I need to know more. This should have been a mini series. (laughs) I could see that. But I also would like it to have been a mini series in the 2000s and not today when it would have been Netflixified to oblivion and the people would have all been unearthly hot instead of just like regular hot. It would have been like too sexy today. Yeah. I mean, Jenna Elfman was already kind of unearthly hot, but she was at least lit like a regular person. I thought this was a movie in which like the 2000s and maybe because it was spot on 2000 and not like 2006 where like I actually kind of liked the fashion and aesthetics of it like her little shirt skirt combo at the company party I really liked and it's not the sort of outfit you would see in a movie today you know what I'm talking about the little like light blue outfit it was sort of her fashion in this was like a way better version of what Meg Ryan wore in Kate and Leopold's (laughs) Oh, shudder. <laughs> Bringing it back. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, much better fitted and more flattering. But yeah, the kind of like very body conscious and tailored and muted tones. Actually, it's Jenna Elfman's fashion about th- this movie seemed weirdly outside of time for me. The the sort of uncanny vibes and the series of strange pushing, you know, bordering on disbelief events that would happen and then the weird splash of humor humor in there. Sometimes it made me think about Moonstruck, but yes, then, yes. Yeah. I was going to say that, Jen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's, but you could tell that Moonstruck was like late eighties or early nineties because of the volume of Cher's hair. And that was the one giveaway that this was two thousands was Jenna Elfman's wardrobe. 
I feel. Oh, and the fact that cell phones were there. Yeah, and, the uh, constant commentary on cell phones <laughs> existing and being <laughs> small and that kind of thing. No easier way to date a movie than to have characters be like, what's that thing in your hand? Why oh, you can talk oh, wait. into it? That's another point in Father Brian's favor. Okay, he might have given Jenna Elfman a little bit of mild shit about having her cell phone on her all the time for work, but that one little scene in the other one. <laughs> The mailbox. Mostly adorable montage yes. when she and Ben Stiller. Yes. He took her cell phone from her while she was on a work call, hung it up, yes. and threw it into a mailbox. And that, uh, it was unforgivable to me. I chose to forget about that as soon as it happened. <laughs> I hate that scene in all rom-coms where it's supposed to be cute that someone has destroyed your like piece of communication technology, which- Oh, oh, you mean these pictures? They're covered in a random man's blood. I'm going to throw them in the river for you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she was, I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure actually that Helena Bonham Carter in our movie from last week, A Room with a View, she was definitely goth enough to have wanted to keep those blood-covered pictures. And our boy George should not have tossed them so casually without consulting her about that. (laughs) Now you're just making me want to see modern rom-com tropes like transported into period pieces where like, you know, a guy in Victorian England would be like, you're too addicted to your quill ink pot combo. (laughs) I'm going to pick it up and throw it in the pond. Like this modern technology. Fuck you, Darcy. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, God. Yeah, other than that, it 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 wasn't a very, I don't know, it was tropey, but then not tropey. You know, it was a love triangle without being a love triangle. It was a comedy about faith with while also just kind of using faith as set dressing and not really getting too deep into it. A movie of paradoxes, much like Edward Norton, a walking paradox, you know? I'm a simple girl. I just like height. I see height differences and I'm in. <laughs> And You're I talking loved- about the Ben Stiller, Jenna Elfman yes. height difference? Yes. Yeah. Ben Stiller's 5'7", and Jenna Elfman is 5'10", and it really was like a balm to my soul. They look good <sighs> together. But are either of you Ed- Edward Norton fans, or am I going to be alone in, in this? Because as a semi-pretentious and judgmental person, I <laughs> see myself in him and respect him. I loved him in the Paul Giamatti vehicle, The Illusionist. But other than that, I'm not familiar. He's been uh, in Fight I'm Club, in American Club History and American X, History X, The Incredible Hulk. Oh, God. his I'm sorry. His Hulk was not my favorite Hulk. But neither was Eric Bana's. Actually, there has been no good Hulk, if you ask me, other than Lou Ferrigno. And, and Mark Ruffalo's all right, just because he looks rumply and nice. But hang on. I'm looking up Ed Norton's IMDb right now. Well, my thing with him is... I think he's like a very talented actor and like a pretty good writer, but like has developed a reputation that he he bristles at of being like <laughs> difficult to work with. But whenever I read the stories about him being difficult to work with, I'm just like, well, he was he was right. Like the Incredible Hulk did need rewriting. Like <laughs> the Marvel movies are superficial. Like I, I don't know because he was famously the Hulk, and then like got recast with Mark Ruffalo or someone who was going to play really nice with the Marvel system, and yeah. not someone who was going to be like the Hulk is the like like 
what did Edward Norton call it? Like the Prothean, the Promethean myth or something like that, you know, like someone who's like, what, why does the Hulk transform? And what does that say about our society? And like, you know, like, so Samantha, I had a little laugh out loud moment there looking up Edward Norton to look at his filmography because the suggested Google question that comes up at the top when I search Ed Norton is, is Ed Norton a nice guy? <laughs> <laughs> and let me see what the answer is. No, it just says, oh, it gives a lot of stuff about his Oscar nominations and everything. Hmm. And then says that he is reportedly not the most easygoing guy on movie sets. But like, but like, what but if everyone if else right. is wrong and Maybe Edward Norton right. is right, you know? I think it's fascinating that he can, uh, I see why he has a reputation of being such a good actor because in the, I mean, because he has been a great actor in most of the performances that I've seen him in. He has this effect that he can just look kind of like a bland, you know, any guy, but then he can really hone in with, I mean, violence wasn't really a thing in this movie, but when he had that one scene with Jenna Elfman that Samantha brought up, that was sexy. That was really, really hot. And he went very much from like, it was a on a dime from I'm a just a jogging little easygoing priest to, oh, like you need help stretching to like, boom, this is like softcore porn. Like, wow, like good, good software porn. So uh, he seems like he just has a lot of, he's got a lot going on under there that I don't know if this particular role as, as Father Brian served those abilities as well as some of his other parts have. I... <laughs> think maybe I just have a respect for anyone who goes up against Marvel superhero movies. And this will be the controversial thing I say, perhaps more controversial than Sadie, <laughs> Sadie going to God. battle with deity. <laughs> is, I don't really like Marvel superhero movies because yeah. they all feel the same. They're, it's like jokey and fun and light. And then it just ends with people shooting laser beams at each other and the good person's laser beam wins or like the good person punches harder or whatever and samantha you said you wanted to avoid the angry emails like okay sadie killing god is one thing but now you have set us up for it but yeah they do get really repetitive yeah ed norton like like got a lot of like shit i think for like doing the hulk and then like being having standards that were like yeah i'm not gonna do like any more of these movies because i didn't like how the first one turned out he said in the new york Times, I pulled this quote up for you. He said the New York Times interviewer was like, hearing the way you talk about storytelling and the film business, even just you using a phrase like high fructose corn syrup, makes me wonder if your starring in The Incredible Hulk was bound to create some friction with Marvel. And he says, <laughs> Well, no, I loved the Hulk comics. I believed they were very mythic. And what Chris Nolan had done with Batman was going down a path that I aligned with, dark and serious. If there was ever a thing that I thought had that in it, it was the Hulk. It's literally the Promethean myth. I laid out a two-film thing, the origin and then the idea of the Hulk as the conscious dreamer, the guy who can handle the trip. And they were like, that's what we want. As it turned out, that wasn't what they wanted. So 
I like this little comedy of errors that he describes between him and Marvel, where like Marvel, this is like 2008, probably like at the start of like Marvel's successes, and they want to cast big names, and Edward Norton is a hot A-list name, and he comes to them, and he's like, yo, it's the Promethean myth, like he can dream, but he's aware of the dream, like what an idea, let's play with that. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever, will you just be in the movie, because we want your name on the top of the poster and then they cast him and he's actually like serious about doing that and they're like uh what (laughs) like uh we thought you were just gonna shut up and like be green and mad like (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah yes samantha i mean i have i think we all here have big beef with marvel i know i do and like specifically marvel's owners disney who are just really big in like never really saying a whole lot with their movies, always staying sanitized, safe. Coincidentally, the John Boyega interview with GQ just came out today as we are recording this podcast. And yes, and I think that that's relevant to this conversation as well. I can't believe that we are tying this back into a conversation about keeping the faith. But um, yeah, Disney, not it, doesn't stick up for its actors, aren't willing to, you know, do something different or listen to its actors. So I 100%, I I stand with Edward Norton and John Boyega, but also Edward (laughs) Norton, justice for the original Hulk. Yeah, I, I think like that's part of what I've enjoyed about doing the podcast, especially when we cover older movies is like, it, it helps me forget for a moment how homogenized and status quo upholding like essentially every major God. studio releases yes. now is Disney has just gobbled up entertainment companies and like, God, even a movie like Keeping the Faith is is sanitized as parts of it are. Like it has some teeth and some edges and things you can hold on to. It it's not just smooth brained like space propaganda. It's just like it's about <laughs> things and people. I was watching this is unrelated in terms of movie, but I was watching Adam's Family Values, the 1993 movie. And I was just thinking, damn, this movie will not like a movie like this will not get made (laughs) now. Like it's just I love I love 90s rom coms and early 2000s rom coms when they're not afraid to be a little different, a little funky. They're not afraid to make Edward Norton a priest and Ben Stiller a rabbi and have them fight over (laughs) Jenna Alf who is a Scientologist. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I'm glad it was made then. People are too hot yeah. in things today. Too many hot people. Too hot. Yes. Yeah. In, in a weird, a truly uncanny way. Like Jenna Elfman looks super hot in this, but she does look, she doesn't have Instagram face. You know, it's not. She's got her face can make expressions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's got interesting yeah. teeth. Yeah. Oh my god, I love interesting teeth in movies. Like Kirsten Dunst yes. for life, because I am so tired of seeing chiclet veneers and people trying to act like that is just a thing on people you see around town everywhere. Maybe you do in Hollywood, so that's why they don't notice that it's so strange to not see like any 
individualism and teeth whatsoever. Okay, speaking of Jen Elfman's character, I wanted to make a left field pitch for her and her assistant who clearly like has <gasps> yes, yes, his lit a candle for for her boss. There was a point when I was watching this movie where I did yell out loud lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> in regards to the assistant. Yeah, Debbie is the real loser of this rom-com who, you know, lose, has to help her boss, you know, uh, reconnect with yeah. clearly the woman that she was destined to be with. She was playing the long game, working for her all these years, following her around <laughs> to different cities. And then... Right. She knew her schedule. She knew her life. Like, damn. My husband did walk in and catch the end of this movie where, uh, about at the time where Edward Norton gives Ben Stiller the, like the last rabbi trading card he needs or whatever that he's apparently been carrying around on him even though they had like a like potentially friendship ruining, definitely career threatening <laughs> on both of their parts, fight in a public place and have not spoken for weeks. And he gives him this special gift. And anyway, Justin walked in and saw that and was like, why don't the two of them just get together? <laughs> Which yeah. would have made a lot of sense to me personality-wise, but would definitely be a problem with the Catholicism. I'm not certain about the Judaism, but... Well, I... Once I always bring up thruples on this podcast. They looked like such a beautiful and happy thruple in that picture yes. that ended the whole movie. Yes. But it also seemed kind of like Ed Norton's character go away a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, when he when when they were already embracing and then he came in hot coming around the, coming around the, the back, I was like, oh. <laughs> well, it did seem like a very thruply scenario then at that point because he comes yeah. in and literally in kind of like a like a come on voice is like, oh, is three a crowd? And she's like turns around smiling and is like, not this three or whatever, like something like that and I was like damn like okay <laughs> I'm with Sadie on I don't see how he can really go back to the priesthood after this but maybe he can like that was just really weird advice from his mentor who's like oh yeah I fall in love all the time but then I just don't act on it because I'm married to God and that's okay like is that like it was very kind of like that guy's vibes were very like eponine on my own sort of thing except by his own choice because he's becoming a priest not because his love is unrequited by the object of his affection and then he doesn't die he just keeps being a priest for decades yeah yeah I just I think that he would be so much better suited to I, I don't know like working with kids like maybe in like a youth community outreach program he can speak at least Spanish as well as English like he's at least bilingual he could do he could do so many things. So I hope I hope that eventually he changes his mind and does something else. Whereas I think that Ben I think that Jake is really well suited to be a rabbi. And I think that he's he's right where he where he wants to be and where he needs to be. And he can still be happy and also be a rabbi. Whereas I don't get that vibe from Brian. Yeah, Brian is gonna move out of the Hogwarts house lobby that he apparently <laughs> lives in and explore himself, I think. I am I'm over here just stuck 
dissecting every step of the Marvel Norton feud. And wow, (laughs) I won't bore you with too much more of it, but I thought this was particularly galling. Some Marvel head honcho or something, because he... Norton was the Hulk and then I guess the first Avengers movie came out or something and Marvel felt the need to release a statement explaining why like Norton was recast or like wasn't in it anymore and the statement said our decision is definitely not based on monetary factors but instead rooted in the need for an actor who embodies the creativity and collaborative spirit of our other talented <gasps> cast members Whoa. oh my god no they did not yeah. holy shit fuck marvel man well that's just rude <laughs> like what in the fuck be like he's not creative and he doesn't get along well with the other A-list actors who we've paid to abandon all of their creative aspirations for themselves to bring people to our McDonald's Happy Meal movies. I <laughs> am going to get way more angry emails. <laughs> I I'm have go- cemented it. <laughs> I'm going to get an Edward Norton tattoo. <laughs> Right next to your new Ben Stiller tattoo. Right next to my <laughs> your your thruple with a Jenna Elfman in the middle from Keeping the Faith tattoo that Sadie has scheduled for this weekend already. Yeah, like one right on top of each other on my calf. That's where they're going. <laughs> He does go a little far in this New York Times interview, Edward Norton, (laughs) in comparing the way people try to pit him and Marvel against each other to Russians manipulating the election. That might be like a parallel that, but that that kind of like pretentiousness is what I love about him. I I feel like if I were famous, I would do things like that. I would, I would. (laughs) You are famous and you do do things like that. Anyway, shall we rate? (laughs) I suppose so. I think we should rate. Well, I'll go first, and I give it five Promethean torches out of five (laughs) because I really, I really liked the chemistry between Jake and Anna. I thought it was very fun. I, I thought that the dialogue was really good and nuanced. And also if there's, if a romance, if a rom-com starts with some jazz playing and a view of the city (laughs) skyline, then I don't even need to watch the rest of the movie. It's already a five out of five for me, but I really liked it. And also I'm actually going to bump it up to a 10 out of five because of the height difference. So that's an extra five just for the height (laughs) because I was so into it. Like the height difference plus she's wearing heels. It's good, Jen. It's good. (sighs) Jen, do you want to go first or second or Uh, should I? Sure. I'll go ahead and go. I'm still thinking up what I'm going to say, but I give it three awkward run-ins with people that you hope to not see from your congregation at a movie theater, plus one rousing, slightly off-key karaoke session at a joint interfaith community senior center out of five. (laughs) I enjoyed a lot about it, but I also found it extremely baffling and found myself making some weird facial expressions at the TV trying to take in everything that was happening but I mean damn yeah it's it's so much better than the kissing booth 2 
you know. I mean, I feel like <laughs> you can't say that for everything. I feel like I have picked up dog shit more, more compelling <laughs> than the Kissing Booth movies. I feel like, yeah. Anyway, I will give this movie uh, four T Bone the security guard clothes lines T-bone. out of five. <laughs> I disagree with her choice of romantic partner, but generally it was a very pleasant movie and I'm glad I I'm glad we resurfaced it from the dark recesses of my memory and watched it and talked about it. I also think that I'm going to throw a Hail Mary Ally Decker would have been a great choice for Rabbi Jake. Ally Ally Decker played the woman who wanted him to punch him. She's also in Girlfriend Guide, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce and House. Amazing. I thought that that she was um, Lisa Rubenstein. Oh, you're right. Who am I thinking of with Allie Rachel? Decker? Oh, that's right. Okay. So Lisa Edelstein. Oh, uh-huh. Edelstein. Yes. Definitely. He had some Jewish hotties throwing themselves at him. Yeah. He had a lot of good options. I kind of, yeah, that's what I thought that the vibe was that he was reluctant to sleep with any of them because then he would be linked to them. Like it would be really difficult, you know, then it would be like a thing and it would cause ill will amongst the congregation if he tried to keep it casual or break it off. And yeah, I think that both he and Anna were lying to themselves, obviously the whole time that they were keeping that casual. And anyway, even after that entrance to the apartment on the first night, but good for them that they were apparently happy for at least a night at the senior center afterwards. <sighs> well, that was keeping the thing. I don't know how we <laughs> ended up declaring war on God and talking about Marvel movies for an hour. Oh, but I've been wanting to talk about now about war on God or about fighting with God is have you guys seen City of Angels with Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan? I'm glad we've arrived at Nicolas Cage, which I feel like is the destiny of any podcast episode we record. Because Sadie, if you have not seen that one, I don't know how we can possibly work it into the mission of this podcast where there would be like another guy involved. But that was strangely one of the ones that was incredibly popular in my group of friends when we were like 12 and we thought was the greatest movie of all time, which features Nicolas Cage as an angel who hurls himself out of heaven to earth to take on mortality and I guess eternal damnation following death away from the presence of God because he is into Meg Ryan. And then we all (laughs) God nursed him by killing Meg Ryan with a truck after Nicolas Cage and her get to have one like magical night of sex together so that Nicolas Cage is left alone on the earth without his true love that he gave everything up for. What? And um, so if we want to be mad at God I think that we should watch that one. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> punch me. Excuse me? You heard me. Um, I, I'm not gonna punch you. I think you will find Rabbi Shram that this princess is no pushover. <laughs>